From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Long-haul COVID and the exhaustion that can come with present an opportunity to learn more about chronic fatigue, a condition that's all too often dismissed. We'll hear from a doctor who's navigated this himself. He used to run marathons, then could barely make it into work. Later, how a former drug user and federal prisoner in Pueblo wound up growing his family's small business and the message he shares with kids who have their own entrepreneurial hopes. Plus, the story of a Grammy-winning musician's near-death experience in Denver. Everybody talks about some fateful day. Yeah, I guess this was mine. Singer-songwriter Mark Cohn. You never think that these things are going to happen, but obviously they do, and that night was my uh, luckiest unlucky night. If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News in KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Long COVID may have something to teach us. Those lingering symptoms of pain, brain fog, and exhaustion are familiar to people who haven't had COVID, but who suffer from chronic fatigue. People who are often told it's all in their heads. People like Dr. Michael Gallagher of Denver. He was a triathlete, contracted a common virus, seemed to get better, but wound up bedridden. And doctor, welcome to the program. Ryan, good morning. Thank you for having me on. You were a marathon runner. You are an orthopedic surgeon. That's a very physical job. What was your health like before you got sick? Before I got sick, I was a very active guy. Um, I would typically run in the morning before going to work. Um, And that's kind of a way things uh, started each day for me to kind of wake my brain up. And then at work, uh, pretty, pretty long days. So, you know, 10 to 12 hours, uh, often at work standing. So physically, I was pretty fit. Uh, Fast forward and contrast that with your condition at your worst, say in about 2020. At my worst, I was predominantly confined to a bed or a chair. Uh, That lasted actually several months. And I was using a wheelchair uh, with my wife or my kids pushing me around to get around if I went outside the house. It sounds terrifying. Did you know what was going on? Initially, I did not. It actually took several years for me to get diagnosed and to really figure out what was going on. Because I was burning the candle at both ends, I thought maybe I was just overdoing it. Hmm. My illness did start with a virus, and it always occurred to me that it probably was related to that. But because it went away and then came back, I wasn't quite sure. And things like chronic fatigue syndrome entered my mind. But when, as a doctor, I looked at the diagnostic criteria, I didn't exactly match 
what you are supposed to have to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue or as it's now called ME. Right, ME. Uh, and uh, let me have you say what ME stands for. It's myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I can explain that if you want. Sure. Myalgic refers to what you referred to, which is muscle pain. A lot of patients with ME have pain. Um, and the encephalomyelitis refers to inflammation of the brain and the spinal cord. And so this is really thought to be a neurologic disease and inflammation of the uh, neurologic system. And, and initially it wasn't, wasn't thought to be that. And recently it's, it's changed names a few times. And I think most people have landed on ME as the, as the most accepted term, although in the general population, most people have never heard the, the term ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's still known more commonly as chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and indeed, looking back, you believe that a virus you had in 2014 triggered uh, this long-term illness. So is it well documented that viruses can trigger ME? It's perhaps the most common story that ME patients have. And there's a refrain that says, I had a virus and I never got better. And that that is really true uh, for a lot of patients. Not everyone, uh, but I would say certainly the majority of patients will look back in their history and say, well, I just remember I had mono, which is a, a common one, mm. uh, and why it is uh, very common to start at that age when, when people get mono, so around high school and college. Uh, but it can be other viruses, too. That phrase, I had a virus and I never got better, it's a phrase that's going to resonate with people dealing with long COVID. Uh, and I say long COVID, we're only, what, about two years into the pandemic. Um, so, you know, what is this moment revealing to you about the journey that may lie ahead for folks? There's two sides of, of the coin here. There's uh, the long COVID side, and then there's the ME side for patients with long COVID in the entire world, you know, this has the potential to be a significant health problem um, for a long time to come, especially if what we're seeing now continues with the Omicron and we get an endemic uh, um, coronavirus instead of a, a pandemic where a year and two and three years from now we have these waves like influenza that come every year. And if patients are a certain percent of patients are are having symptoms for an extended period of time, there may be a, a public health issue with that where we see millions of people who don't feel better once, once the COVID goes away and that can affect their lives. And then the other side of it is the ME side. There are a lot of us patients uh, with ME who look at this and say, Perhaps this is an opportunity for uh, scientists to figure out what is causing ME. Is it the same as what's causing long COVID? Hmm. Do we have any evidence that COVID could cause ME? I want to make sure that we're not unnecessarily confusing things, you know. It's a great question, Ryan. We don't know yet. We don't know if ME and long COVID are the same if long COVID is a subset of ME. 
But what we do know is they have a very similar constellation of symptoms. And that includes uh, fatigue and pain and brain fog, as you mentioned, and post-exertional malaise, meaning if someone does too much, uh, they feel sick. They have flu-like symptoms. And that, for some people, is uh, going to a full day of work. And for other people, it's having the conversation you and I are having. And I was at that point at one time where a 20-minute conversation would make me sick. And I, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm not there now, and I hope I'm, I'm never there again. But it's a testament to the fact that uh, it is a wide-ranging uh, set of symptoms and, and uh, can be very severe at times. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about what long COVID might reveal about what has traditionally been known as chronic fatigue, uh, and uh, from a medical standpoint, is is now officially named ME. That's myelogic myelogic uh, encephalomyelitis. And my guest, Dr. Michael Gallagher of Denver, has dealt with ME, and is uh, indeed helping us understand uh, what the connection might be to this in long COVID, which shares many of the same symptoms: so pain, ba- brain fog, exhaustion, and and just to explore a little bit more of your personal story. How did you get, if not entirely better, better than you were? I think the the biggest thing for me has been pacing. Um, pacing is perhaps the only universally recommended uh, treatment. We all have an energy envelope. I think that's true whether you're sick or not, but in ME it's particularly true that there is an energy envelope uh, that you have to stay inside. If you do too much and you expend more energy uh, than than your illness will allow, it'll make you sick. And for years, uh, I did not understand or appreciate that. And I would get sick, rest because I didn't feel well, then go try to do more. I tried to push through it, Mm. uh, which was counterproductive. It made me sicker instead of better. And so for, for me last year, I left work. I left work for 10 months. I, I was in bed. I wasn't operating. I wasn't seeing patients. I was predominantly uh, resting. And I think that is the biggest factor for me. Um, There are no approved medical treatments currently for ME. There are some that some doctors are trying uh, and some patients swear that has made them better, but the the FDA has not approved the treatment for it yet. I I would like to talk about the stigma of this. Um, What was the stigma inside you about this. I mean, you'd been a runner. You'd, I think, yeah, you'd done marathons, triathlons. Again, this very physical job of orthopedic surgery. What were your own perceptions of yourself as you dealt with this? And then what did you hear from those around you about your changed condition? I think the stigma surrounding ME is one of the hardest things for people to deal with, myself included. I identified myself as, uh, you know, as an ultra marathoner, as a, you know, an Ironman triathlete, and it was, 
a very difficult reality to accept that I was not able to do those things. It also probably led to a little bit of denial um, of could this could this really be me? Am I really going down this path? And then, you know, upon my return to work, Ryan, I actually hid my diagnosis. Hmm. I was reluctant to come out and say that I had, uh, you know, what my partners understood as chronic fatigue syndrome. Even you know, uh, many doctors don't don't uh, understand the the words myalgic encephalomyelitis. And uh, encouraged by my family, I wrote an email to my partners and explained it all. I laid it out there for them, including everything I'd been through. And very thankfully, the response was great. And it inspired me to keep writing to try to help, uh, I think, not just the medical community understand, but the world at large understand there is no shame in being sick with this. It is not something that comes from someone being weak. Uh, It's not something someone chose. And... uh, we shouldn't have to be ashamed to say we have an ME any more than we should be ashamed to say we have cancer. You say you kept writing. I want to mention that you are writing a book called Run Down uh, that's going to publish next spring. To what extent do you think that the stigma around ME is baked in to a medical education? Like what, what are medical students told about this? We were taught very little about it. Uh, We certainly were never, ever taught a mechanism of disease, meaning what causes this. Mm -hmm. We were taught in part uh, to stay away from patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, lest they uh, take up your time that you could be spending on patients with real problems. That was essentially the message that we were getting. Now, it was 20 plus years ago that I was in medical school and things have changed, but um, a lot of us that are in practice were in medical school 20 years ago, and that's the basis of our understanding for this illness. Before we go, do you hope that COVID, long COVID, supercharges, I guess, both research into ME and maybe supercharges people's perception of it? Yeah. I not only hope, I know it will. Um Congress appropriated more than a billion dollars for research of long COVID alone. I know that's going to spill over and there are wonderful patient advocacy groups um, that that are working to destigmatize this and to partner with long COVID patient groups to help figure out the disease process, figure out the treatment and be supportive of patients and their families that have this because it is as you might imagine, at times, a big burden on on the family as well. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Dr. Michael Gallagher, orthopedic surgeon in Denver. Indeed, his book, Run Down, about his battle with ME, also known as chronic fatigue, that'll publish next spring. And we'll be right back with a small business owner who didn't think he'd make it to 30. Spoiler alert, he did. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
thank you to everyone who made a gift to CPR yesterday on Giving Tuesday. On a day of global giving, you helped make an impact right here in Colorado. CPR's music programming and in-depth fact-based news coverage is a lifeline for many. You make it possible through your support. Thank you. Keeping rural Coloradans rural is Julie Worley's goal. She runs a youth entrepreneurship program in southeast Colorado, and we spoke this past summer when our road trip took us to La Junta. Here's some of what she shared with us. Young people usually want to stay in their home communities. They want their kids to go to school in schools like they attended. They want to live in a small town where they have family connections and just neighbor connections. And I saw southeast Colorado. It's a very similar landscape. It's where I was raised in western Nebraska as an opportunity to put a program, an entrepreneurship program in place here and begin to change the culture, which takes years to get the kids to realize that they could have a career, a business. They could live here and live and work and raise their families here. Well, Worley brings in speakers, other entrepreneurs who've made it work. And one of them caught our attention. He is Rory Huskin, who owns Cornerstone Roofing and Gutter, a business his father started in Pueblo. Under Rory, it has expanded to Colorado Springs and beyond. But his path to success is something like out of a country western song, which, as you'll hear, is a pretty apt description. And Rory, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In your <laughs> keynotes, you reflected on being a former drug user who spent time in federal prison. Were you nervous to share those details with a group of young people? So, you know what I told them is, so I go to prisons and, and uh, jails and uh, halfway houses and uh, churches, you know, I, I, and I speak a lot, but it's way easier to speak to convicts than it is to children, to kids. Um, you know, it just, it's always a different, uh, you know, it's always a different speech. It's always something, you know, that, that, that I have to think real hard about talking to kids. So what was their reaction as you revealed detour, details of your story? So I, I wondered if they were paying attention, you know, cause I <laughs> you always hear kids attention span isn't that long, you know, and you know, I've got eight daughters of my own and 14 grandkids and I raised two grandkids and I could tell you that's normally the truth. But so, you know, when the question and answer part, uh, I realized that they had been listening because they asked some really good questions and, you know, it, it uh, the questions made, you know, they, they made me think about, uh, and I thought, wow, they, they were really listening. So, yeah. Questions like what? I'm curious. You know, uh, so <clears throat> when Julie Worley uh, asked me to do this the first time was a couple years ago and she had heard me speak at the uh, Pueblo entrepreneur and that's up CSU Pueblo and I was the guest speaker for the kids night um, and uh, so she hit me up there and asked me to come to uh, La Junta and speak and and truthfully I had to to call her four times and I said Julie you sure you want me to give my testimony that's what you want to hear. And she assured me that that's exactly what those kids needed to hear. So, yeah. What do you think about that message is what they needed 
to hear. Again, these are young entrepreneurs, and Julie Worley, as you mentioned, runs this program in part to keep them more rooted in their communities. True. So so here's where I start the, the conversation out with them, is the state of Colorado and our government um, has given you know, they, they're giving you the wrong impression. They're saying that, that, that marijuana is legal and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a drug. I, I believe that it's a gateway drug. I, I don't, I really don't care. A drug is a drug is a drug. And I tell them, look, um, I know people who smoked marijuana once, twice, didn't like it, never touch it again. I know kids that uh, um, smoked it one time and couldn't stop. And the same with other drugs. And my, my, my advice to you is if you never start, you never have to stop. You know, you never have to figure out what personality you are. And, uh, you know, if you're the, the kid who, who smokes at one time and can't stop, you know, it, it could be a life of trouble, you know, so. And let me just share a bit of your personal experience, which informs this view. You spent time in a federal prison. You were convicted of possession and use of a controlled substance and served a bit more than four years of a six-year term. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. people's experiences with marijuana uh, differs, but um, would you say that that time in prison was the low point of your journey? Oh, no doubt about it. Um, you know, you drive through those gates and they, show, they, they shut those gates behind you and it's just uh, the sinking feeling in your heart. It's like, wow, I finally made it. Um, it's definitely the low point of, of my life. And, you know, I for, for the first year and a half or so, I, I lived in victim stance. Poor me. Poor me. And, of course, there was no drugs or alcohol or anything. So I ate food, you know, um, which was, you know, my 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 uh, um, alternative drug, you know, for where I was at the time. And at some point, I, I stopped uh, feeling sorry for myself and said, you know, this isn't the person that I want to be. I, I, I have these dreams. You know, I have uh, daughters. I want to be part of their lives. While I was in prison, my oldest daughter had uh, um, a, a son. And uh, I, I didn't even have any pictures. You know, my kids didn't want to be part of my life. Uh, I had gotten that bad. You know, people were disposable in my life. They were like big lighters, you know, you use them up and throw them away. So hmm. I didn't care too much for who I was. So your father started this roofing company and while you run it now, I understand it's not originally what you wanted to do. Um, what, what, <laughs> what did you want to do and did the pressure to follow in his footsteps send you down that troubled path in which people were disposable? You know, it's, um, yeah, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a biologist. I was good in school, and that's that was my dream. Um, I followed my dad's dream. Um, you know, he, he needed help and needed me around and wanted me to help run his roofing business, uh, which was in Denver. My little brother was killed in a car accident when I was 19, and uh, I was angry. And a year later, my dad got killed in a car accident, and then I was angry. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like uh, maybe I was next. 
I had made a vow to myself that I never lived past 30 and I lived my life like I wouldn't live past 30 and uh, drugs and alcohol and, you know, being shot at, stabbed, you name it, thrown over balconies. You know, it's just not the life that, that people, you know, normal, rational people would want to live. Hmm. Indeed, you didn't think you'd live past 30, which is the idea behind a song you wrote called 30, it 31. It's on an album titled Sentenced to Live. Sick and tired of trying So lost and broken inside I tried my best to hide it A part of me had died Nothing mattered to me So you indeed have pursued music, a passion for you, but how did you come to terms with the unfulfilled dreams of a career in medicine and embrace this roofing company, your father's business that you've since grown? You know, I realized at some point that I was good at what I did. And, uh, you know, the old adage is if you, uh, if you love what you're doing, you never have to work a day in your life. Um, and, and by the way, I, I had worked for my dad's company in Denver. Uh, when, when he, when he died, I ran it for a couple of years and then, um, because of my drug use and, and alcoholism and all that good stuff, I lost it. I moved back down to Pueblo and, uh, I worked for my dad's brother for several years. And at some point I started cornerstone roofing myself. So, um, um, but it, it just got to be that I love what I do. Um, and today I really, you know, I, I get to talk to people. I, I get to talk to you. I get to share my testimony. Uh, you know, the album, um, it, it's my life is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a blessed life. I, I, I enjoy my life th- today. Um, but it was, it was a long, hard fight back from living in, in my truck or begging money and, you know, being a drug addict and all that good stuff. So, If someone came to your business today and laid out a story like yours, uh, would you hire them? And, and do you almost feel obligated to employ people who were on a similar path as you? I mean, I'm reminded of, uh, what is it, Dave's Killer Breads, the company based in Oregon that calls itself a second chance employer. So I, I am definitely one of those people that believe in second chances. And I can tell you that over the years, we've hired people, ex, ex-felons, uh, can, you know, um, ex-cons, um, I'm going to tell you that it's the, one of the biggest heartbreaks in my life. Uh, when they say that recidivism is X amount, 50, 60% or whatever they say, I, I'm going to tell you that I think it's much, much higher than I think it's up in the 90s, maybe, you know, uh, mid-90s uh, recidivism. So, you know, I've hired so many people and, and watched them just uh, deteriorate and go back to what they were doing and, and – uh, it's 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 really it's difficult to watch and especially 
that I know all the blessings and, and the way that life can be today. So We have uh, just about a minute left, but do you think that there's something people face once released that is most often the culprit for why they return? And yeah, one of the first things that I tell them when I go to speak in prisons is, is there's two people, two, two kinds of people that come out of prison, grateful and resentful. And if you're still resentful today and, and you're blaming your circumstances on somebody else, then chances are this is your future. So you, my advice is that you get a grateful list. I don't care what that is, that, that I have oxygen to breathe, that I have a bed to sleep in. Hmm. A grateful list. A grateful list. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Rory, for being with us and sharing your experience. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Rory Huskin owns Cornerstone Roofing and Gutter based in Pueblo. He also hosts a podcast, Keeping It Real with Rory, and is working on a new album. He is someone we connected with thanks to our recent road trip to Colorado's Arkansas Valley. Colorado Matters carries on with singer-songwriter Mark Cohn at a life-changing event following a concert in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at CPR would like to thank the members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado. Thank you for your support. Happy holidays. Do you know this song? The opening notes might give it away. shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain Singer-songwriter Mark Cohn found huge success in 1991 with Walking in Memphis that helped him win a Grammy and established his career as a gifted storyteller, soul man, and steward of American roots music. Then I'm walking in Memphis Walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Cohn has worked with Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, David Crosby, Patty Griffin, and for his 2019 album titled Work to Do, he teamed up with Grammy-winning veterans of the gospel world, the Blind Boys of Alabama. Yeah, John said the city was built for square. I walk in Jerusalem just like John. I won't be content till I get there. Yeah, walk in Jerusalem just like John. I said I want to be ready. Yeah, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. Oh yeah, to walk in Jerusalem just like John. 
As Colorado Matters marks 20 years on the air, we're revisiting some of our favorite moments, including my 2019 interview with Mark Cohn. We discussed the gospel album and the event that nearly took his life in Denver. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I have to say that so much of your music gives me gospel goosebumps. I just get (laughs) so moved. Do you remember the first time you heard gospel? I don't remember the very first time, but it was there from the time I was a kid. I don't even know why or how. Um, I was a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, but somehow gospel music made its way through to my, my brainwaves, and it's moved me from the very beginning, and still does, obviously. Was it your parents? Was it uh, some other influence? Well, one of my older brothers was a really great piano player, much better than me. And he had a band that used to rehearse in our basement. And they largely played Ray Charles and Dionne Warwick and things like that. But I think he also was plugged into gospel. And that's probably, listen, I mean, Ray Charles, that comes from gospel. Basically, what Ray did was take the, the feel and the vibe and the passion of gospel music and change the lyric. There also, my parents died when I was quite young, and I think for a brief moment there was someone along with my older brother who took care of me, and I think she sang a lot of gospel music. It strikes me that so much of gospel comes from pain and strife. Mm. Uh, I wonder if having lost your parents early on, perhaps you identified with gospel because it was a kind of plaintive genre of music. That's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. I think there were a lot of things about it. I mean, it's also... You know, it can be quite fiery and passionate and just unendingly soulful. Um, So I was attracted to all kinds of music from the time I was seven or eight years old. And I was already writing songs then, too. So, um, yeah, yeah, I had a strange childhood, (laughs) but a lot to to write about. So I did. What speaks to you about this collaboration with the Blind Boys? Well, obviously, it's my early love of gospel music coming completely full circle. One of the things I loved growing up, another huge influence for me was Paul Simon. And he had a record called There Goes Rhyme and Simon, which to this day is still one of my favorite albums of all time. Definitely a desert island disc for me. And on that record, there's a song called Tenderness and Loves Me Like a Rock, which featured the Dixie Hummingbirds, a great gospel group. And that combination of Paul's music, lyrical sensibility, his voice matched with the Dixie Hummingbirds, which were an amazing group. Uh, it's one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard. So I suppose this collaboration with the Blind Boys is my version of that, you know, mixing singer-songwriter sensibility with gospel group sound, which was already sort of in the recordings of mine. Songs like Ghost Train, Silver Thunderbird, Walking in Memphis— Baby King. These are all songs that had gospel influence built into them. Okay, let's do something fun. Why don't we first play something from that Paul Simon record, and then we'll, uh, we're going to try to morph that into uh, what you've done with the Blind Boys. Let's do a side-by-side uh, audio taste test. When I was a little boy, I was just a boy. the devil called my name. I, was just a boy. I say now, Sunday quad. Oh, my mama loves me. She loves me. She get down on her knees and hug me. Oh, she loves 
right, that second track, your track with the Blind Boys of Alabama, Marcone, is called Work To Do. Tell us about this track. I had the Blind Boys voices in my head when I wrote that song, and I actually meant the lead vocal to be sung by Jimmy Carter, the oldest member of the group who's, I think, about to turn 88 and is a force of nature. I heard him singing that lyric, which is basically an older man's song uh, about being sort of at the end of your road, but not necessarily at the end of your purpose here. Uh, And Jimmy is so clearly not at the end of his purpose here. He still makes thousands of people smile every night that he comes on stage. Can I put a finer point on what you just said there? To be at the end of your road, but not at the end of your purpose. You mean to not have necessarily much life left, but still a lot to do in that small period of time? Exactly. Exactly. That's sort of the idea behind the song, that the work we have, you know, it could be spiritual work, it could be personal work, it could be could be any kind of work or just work, you know, getting out there and and doing your job. So I was thinking about Jimmy when I wrote that song, even though I'm doing the lead vocal, I was hearing him singing those words. Around this time, shadows are tall, when the moon's on the rise and the writing's on the wall. I think of my friends gone without trace, and I wonder why. I'm still walking around this place Maybe I still have work to do Still have work to do Mark on your debut record in 1991 won you the coveted Best New Artist Grammy at 32 um, compared to some recent winners in that category Chance, <laughs> the rapper, Megan Trainer. 32 may seem considerably older. Do you remember what you thought at the time of that label, New Artist? I mean, as you've told us, you were writing songs from boyhood. Yeah, that that is sort of a strange title, isn't it? Um, even Best New is strange. But listen, <laughs> at the time, I was just so thrilled to be in that rarefied air. You know, I grew up when there was no MTV yet, no VH1. I didn't go to a lot of shows when I was a kid. So the Grammys is where I saw Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder and all my heroes. Got to hear what their speaking voices were like, you know, and how they walked and what what their vibe was. So to be nominated and ultimately to win, whether it was Best New Artist or there were a couple others I was nominated for, it was all thrilling. Um, I wasn't thinking about age or anything like that. I just remember I gave Roseanne Cash a kiss on my way up, even though my wife was sitting next to me on the other side (laughs) and uh, went up and got my award. How did Roseanne feel about that? Well, I, I, she she was fine, and she still teases me about it to this day. We're good friends, and her her husband is my best friend and the producer of this record. Um, so, yeah, she thought it was pretty odd, but she understands now. <laughs> You're talking about John Leventhal here. That's right. Okay, this new album with the Blind Boys is a mix of studio collaborations and live performances uh, with new arrangements of songs from throughout your career. Has performing these with the Blind Boys like breathed new life into some of that older material for you? Totally, totally. Uh, Yes, they have totally breathed new life into the material. I mean, I look across my piano at at the five of them singing these songs with me, and I'm smiling till it hurts. I mean, I've seen pictures of myself on stage with them. I've never looked happier. And a lot of that is just because of the incredible soul and feeling they've brought to my tunes. I said, 
From Mark Cohn, the Grammy-winning singer-songwriter, is in Colorado this week with shows in Denver and Colorado Springs. As he told us in 2019, coming back here stirs a mix of emotions. I want to talk about a near-death experience you had in Denver in August of 2005. You just played a sold-out show at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and you and your entourage were in a van driving downtown near the 16th Street Mall. Uh, will you pick up the story from there? Yeah, we were coming back to the hotel, had a fantastic show. I loved the Botanic Gardens, one of my favorite places to play, just having everybody surrounding you. And I was the only one who noticed some sort of uh, instability, maybe 100 yards to the left of our van. Just something was going on. I didn't know what it was. Somebody was running away. Uh, that's what it was. I'm just remembering that. And uh, within seconds of me noticing that, this man appeared right in front of our van. Driver was still driving it, uh, but he just stood right in front of the van, sort of daring us to stop. And I was the only one who saw that first there was a man and then there was a gun. And shots rang out. I don't remember how many. And as I yelled duck for everybody in the van, unbeknownst to me, I got the bullet landed on the left side of my forehead by my temple and rested because it was a 22 and went through the windshield. You couldn't see it. There was just a hole in my head apparently. But man, this is so weird to talk about all these years later. So there was a hole in my head and blood started streaming down and, and I'd been shot. And unbelievably because of, like I was saying, the 22 caliber and the the windshield that it went through, grazing my tour manager's chin, uh, it stopped just short of my skull and just sat in this little skin that's there. And I watched them take the bullet out. It was a miracle that I survived. And obviously something, even when I talk about it today, uh, it feels like an out-of-body thing. Like, am I really telling a story about myself? Because <laughs> hmm. um, you just never, you never think that these things are going to happen, but obviously they do. And that night was my uh, luckiest unlucky night. I want to just go back to something you said, unbeknownst to me. I think, you know, most of us have not been shot. So I, it's hard for me to relate to the idea of not knowing that you've been shot. Yet uh, That's an mm. experience, of course, that I've heard about. But can you just uh, say a few more words about that? I think that's largely shock, you know, and the fact that in the end, even though it was emotionally overwhelming and incredibly scary in the moment and for, you know, months after, you know, it wasn't meant to kill me. So, uh, I mean, it, it stopped just a centimeter short of killing me or blinding me. So I just wasn't aware of anything until my guitar player looked at me and said, Mark, we got to get out of this van and get you to the hospital. I thought the driver had been shot. It was, it was a, a way to get our car. It was a carjacking. No. But the man was very high, and I thought he was, he was aiming for the driver, and that's who I thought was hit. So I actually, even with the bullet in my head, tried to grab the wheel from behind him. But, you know, it only took a, a minute or so to realize I was the one that had been shot. Although the only pain I felt was when they finally took the bullet out. 
You were hospitalized really for observation, but released after just eight hours. I mean, even more yeah. remarkable. And I'll say that the man who shot you uh, got 36 years for attempted murder. During your recovery, you were inspired to return to the studio for the first time in, I think, over a decade. And the result was 2007's Join the Parade. Uh, maybe just talk a bit about the role that songwriting had on your healing process. Uh, yeah, songwriting helped me get through that very fragile time and, you know, recovering from the gunshot. Um, like I said, it wasn't a physical recovery. It was all emotional. Uh, and I went to somebody who, you know, dealt with post-traumatic stress, and that was very helpful. And this whole sort of fragility was made even worse because about three weeks after I got shot, Hurricane Katrina hit. So oh, there I my. was watching all of this unfold in my personally fragile state, and it really hit me hard. I mean, it would have anyway, only because of how influenced so many of my friends and I have been by New Orleans and their culture and their music. You know, but when I saw a headline going by that said, you know, on the on the news, uh, Fats Domino, nobody knows where Fats Domino is. You know, there were sort of headlines like that for days. It's not that you'd lived in New Orleans. It's that it was a kind of spiritual city for you as a musician, I gather. Exactly. Exactly. So just the combination of my personal fragile state and this horror happening to one of the great American cities just put me in a place where I needed to write. You know, there was a lot to sing about, to talk about, to write about. And like I've always done, uh, in moments like that especially, uh, music just seems to start coming. I find myself... I find ideas coming at me faster than they normally would in sort of my normal day-to-day -day life. Last question just about the shooting. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but what should people who haven't dealt with violent crime understand about people who have? You know, I think we all, all I'll say is I, I think we all walk around with a necessary sense of safety. But the truth of the matter is none of us knows when we're going to be the victim of something horrible. It happens every day. And it's a horrible thing. I mean, surviving it was miraculous and wonderful. I feel very blessed that I've had, you know, more years than it seems like I should have. But I would say, you know, it's a horror. It's a horror. And uh, anything, you know, we can all do to sort of stop that, you know, I don't want to be proselytizing at the moment, but I, I do feel like I've sung some concerts that have to do with gun control. And I'm very often the only guy on stage who can really talk about this personally. So I I keep all of that largely to myself, but yeah, I think it's something very important for everyone to realize. It could be your kid, it could be your father, your mother, who is the victim, and uh, how can we let this go on? You returned to Denver for a Botanic Gardens show in the summer of 2008. That was less than three years after the shooting. When you come to Colorado, like, do you still associate it with that event, or um, do we represent something more to you? I want to hope that it's the latter, Mark Cohn. It is. It is the latter. It's so great. I mean, I already felt like I had forged a wonderful relationship with my Colorado audience. But this event, and I do think, of course I think about it every time I come there, but the context now is quite lovely. 
everybody was so kind and so loving and so supportive. And when I came back to play, it was like I was playing my hometown. Um, felt more like my hometown than my hometown. <laughs> so wow. um, it's really been wonderful, I have to say. I mean, I'm at a point now where, you know, I don't mention it anymore, but I think there are obviously people in the audience that know what happened. And there is a very special connection because of that. And uh, it's something I feel very grateful for. Do you ever get tired of performing Walking in Memphis? <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's a rare night when I feel like, oh, do I have to tell this story again? I think it's largely because I like the song. But even more to the point is that it's a song about the love of music, the transformational power of music. That's not hard for me to tap into. Of course, that's my life, is believing in the power of music. That's why I go out there, and that's why people are there. That's why I go to other people's shows. It's usually something I feel very connected to, that song. Mark, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Saw the ghost of Elvis On Union Avenue Followed him up to the gates of Graceland And I watched him walk right through Mark Cohn performs tonight at the Paramount Theater in Denver and tomorrow at the Pikes Peak Center in Colorado Springs. We listen back to our 2019 interview as Colorado Matters celebrates two decades of conversation, a milestone that wouldn't be possible without these folks. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. They've got gospel in the air. Reverend Green, be glad to see you when you haven't got.